Hi, my name is Ali Reza Mujibian, and welcome to Noteworthy. Hailing from Hundred Mile House, British Columbia, my guest this week is a man whose passion for the arts and love for the artists who selflessly create is evident in every project he takes on. Aaron Durand was completing his master's when I was just starting out at UBC. Although I had seen him perform many times, I was introduced to the vulnerable, approachable artist that was Aaron Durand at his final voice divisional back in 2012. Although eight years have passed since that divisional, I remember that Aaron sang a number of songs by Wolf. And of all the people who were singing that night, what got to me was his voice and his artistry. It's been years since Aaron and I have really had a chance to speak. If I'm not mistaken, the last time we really spoke in depth was at a Thanksgiving uh, party that was at his home with the Jordan Colalto, and there was a massive turkey with a samurai sword involved. But his poems, his prose, his essays, and his unabashed honesty to no matter how uncomfortable it may be for him has allowed me, as one of his listeners and one of his readers, to become more open, more honest, and more myself. Welcome, Aaron. How are you? (laughs) I'm great. That was one of the best intros of me that I think I've ever heard. I did mention that you're from 100 Mile House, uh, British Columbia. Can you tell us, for for those of us who don't know where 100 Mile House is, or what uh, life in small town British Columbia is like, can you enlighten us? So 100 Mile House is 100 miles up the Gold Rush Trail. It's uh, south central interior of British Columbia. If you know where Kamloops is in BC, it's about two hours north of there. It's a beautiful little town, primarily uh, forestry focused and a little bit tourism focused with the camping and, and cross-country skiing out there. It's Lots of rolling hills and deep, deep, deep woods. Growing up there, I actually spent the first eight years of my life on a ranch in Lac La Hache, just north of 100 Mile, and then spent the rest of my time about 40 kilometers west of 100 Mile in a district called the Interlakes, which is so named because there's like a bazillion lakes. It's uncountable, the number of lakes. So did you do a lot of fishing and camping when you were growing up? I'm assuming so. Tons of camping, tons and tons of camping. Growing up in that era of, I'm 35, so I grew up in the era of, you just like set your kids outside and your kids just like run off (laughs) into the woods. Being brought up in a relatively small community, how old were you when you were exposed to music? Did you always want to become a singer or did you start out with singing like in a choir? I'll try and bullet point it because it's a sizable story, but I've been exposed to all all sorts of music throughout my entire life. Growing up, my parents ran a camp for like city kids and they would learn what it was like to ride a horse, to jump a horse, to like muck out a stall. And every Thursday night, my grandma would have a talent show. And I was a toddler at the time when these first started. So I would be brought into the shows because, you know, having a baby in a show is like great. It's fun. It's cute. (laughs) Yeah, it is. So stage performance has been something that's been around me for a long time. Uh, Huge, diverse, and eclectic musical tastes have been around since the beginning because my dad listened to everything. And and we would hop from like Steely Dan, the Beach Boys, and the Moody Blues to like Aram Khachaturi and Piano Sonatas. And my mom was a wunderkind 
pianist. And so we had lots of piano books and we had an old piano. And my grandma used to play trombone in the Vancouver Youth Symphony. And so we, we just sang as a family. We always jammed. My mom would play piano and I had been taking singing lessons for about two years. We had been singing around the piano as a family. 100 Mile at the time was just full of incredible musicians and incredible talent. It still is. And there was this wonderful singing teacher there, uh, Gloria Brooks. And I studied with her for like the next nine years. So right before, until right before you came, did you start out at UBC for your, for your undergrad? I started out at the Victoria Conservatory of Music under Joanne Hansel. Ah, okay. Before we jump into that, with what kind of music were you singing? Do you, do you have any fond memories of a, of a production you did in town that's particularly stuck with you? Well, speaking of musical talent in 100 Mile, we had this incredible director, uh, Colleen Whitten, who now lives in Calgary. She ran a small musical theater company, the Community Theater, and we did Guys and Dolls. I played Nathan Detroit, and that was mind-blowing. I loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you were initially more interested in musical theater than going the full-on classical route and then joining... My an plan ed- uh, in moving to Victoria was to get a two-year diploma at the Conservatory in voice performance and then move to Vancouver to go to Studio 58 and get two years or three years under my belt of acting and then take dancing as I would. I left dancing to last because I'm a horrible dancer. I've seen you dance on stage in Fledermaus. It wasn't bad. <laughs> it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. That was like, that was a long suffering journey. Uh, who boy. <laughs> The moment that was the transition for me out of musical theater, well, less focused on musical theater, I should say, was actually, so I had this plan. I was going to get two years here, two years there and and learn dancing on the side and then be a big Broadway star. And Robert Holliston, the music history teacher and uh, former repetitor at Pacific Opera Victoria, um, I was in class with him and he was like, oh, hey, you know who needs uh, extra shoring up is the Pacific Opera Victoria Chorus. They're doing Eugene Onegin by Tchaikovsky. And I was like, who's Tchaikovsky? (laughs) (laughs) And then he said, they'll pay you. And I had just moved and I was like, I need money. I need money. I need security. Uh, Yeah, I'll do it, please. I got the score and I had never read Cyrillic before. I I couldn't even fathom the transliteration that they had done. I'd never sung anything like this either. This was so much harder than anything I'd ever done. And I went to the first rehearsal and I was nervous as hell. And then the opening line of the big peasants chorus in act one. And oh my God, it went through me like a spear. This is unlike anything I've ever physically or emotionally experienced before, spiritually even. And that that sort of cemented it. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going to move into opera because that seems like an incredible place to be. After graduating, you were actually part of the inaugural class of the Yolanda M. Ferris Young Artist Ensemble with Vancouver Opera. How was that experience for you to go from wanting to be in musical theater and having that plan that you that you explained planned out and then coming to UBC for your master's and then immediately going into an operatic young artist program? You know, it's, it's funny. I knew I loved opera. 
and I knew I was like super into it all throughout my bachelor's because I did I did my two years at at the con, and then I did bachelor's at UBC. And it wasn't until I started my master's that I was like, I want to make opera a career. And then Yolanda M. Ferris uh, program came up, and that was another incredible blessing on my life. VO's approach to a young artist program is very holistic. Like it's not just we're going to shove you into studio and we're going to sing and we're going to sing. And they're going to sing some more. And for dinner, you'll sing. VO's yap is like, okay, you're going to sing, but you're also going to like take lessons from this like theater director slash actor who's been in the business for years and knows exactly what to do. Oh, also, you're going to like talk to this like financial advisor. Oh, by the way, you're going to do fitness classes. It was exactly what I needed, not just as like a, as a singer and as a professional, but like a human being. You have been literally across the country uh, performing with Against the Grain, Open Space Opera, Dun Cairo with Vancouver Opera, Stick Boy with VOA, Opera Kelowna, Tapestry Opera, Edmonton. What would you say you've learned from your experiences traveling across the country and performing with all of these incredible companies and the multitude of casts and crew? So much of what I've learned, not just about how to live a life, but how I want to live a life. I learned from my experience hopping around the country and from the people that I was around. Traveling the country, performing with all these companies and a multitude of different artists, I learned that family is a much broader definition than we traditionally give it. Forming a little family with each of these casts for a week, two weeks, a month, three months, you inevitably form a bond. And I think if I were to sum up the biggest takeaway that I got from a performing career, it's that you will inevitably form a bond with the people you're around. So why not make that a good bond? <laughs> this might be a little ooga booga, but like, <laughs> in a sense, there's four people in every conversation. There's you, them, who they think you are, and who you think they are. And it just it just behooves you to be real with these people, because to be real with them is to be real with yourself. I feel that especially when you're you are a young artist in school, we all have a tendency to put on a show in preparation for the show we're about to put on. Mm, yep. And yep. it's only with time and with the realities of life sinking in and where you where you realize the importance of what it means to really bring yourself to the table i mean in performance and on every level of your life it makes a difference because the people around you see that you're not as i said putting on a show to put on a show but in fact you are bringing in the real element of who you are as an artist to the table Putting on a show for the show is like putting another layer of icing on a cake. Like it's already got icing on it. You don't you don't need any more and, and people are gonna feel kind of ill if they have if they have too much of it. All the world's a stage already. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it, like it's taken me years to really open up, open myself up, I should say, to the fact that I was for a lot of my life putting on a show for the show. I mean, we've all we've all done it, right? Like we all want to play these roles because we all want to feel like the end result of playing those roles. I wanted to feel like Aaron, the quintessential baritone. I wanted to feel like Aaron, the consummate performer. And sometimes I was, sometimes I was not. Because the truth of the matter is that you were never just the role. There's much, much, much more to you. 
yourself and Jennifer Routhier have started the Troubadour Project together. What is the Troubadour Project and what personal experiences led you to pursue uh, projects like it? The Troubadour Project is something that Jen and I evoked because of the extreme mental stress that we were both experiencing in the performing arts industry. And we were watching close friends and loved ones experience in the performing arts industry. There is a ton of unnecessary and almost institutionalized mental anguish in the performing arts. And I just, I like, I find it offensive. So many things that artists are subjected to are largely optional. Like there's an incredible Instagram account called opera is racist and it's heartbreaking. The things that you see on that, we shouldn't have an account called opera is racist, not because racism doesn't exist because it absolutely does, but because racism shouldn't exist. (laughs) This shouldn't have arrived at our doorstep. So Jen and I sat down and what we arrived at was a company that focuses on using art as therapy where we focus on the artist and not the performance. So we would facilitate workshops that involved not just directors, but therapists, so that people from whatever walk of life who also consider themselves artists, be they painters or instrumentalists or like whatever medium they work in, could come in with a director or with a mentor and also with a therapist and transmute some of the traumas that they've experienced into their art. And that's that's one facet. And then another facet was just facilitating uh, roundtable discussions away from the ears of people that might hire you, like completely like closed door discussion groups who could then get together and not just vent, which I think is part of the process, but also talk about what they can do to maintain a sense of cohesion as a group, maintain a sense of purpose as a group, and maintain a sense of camaraderie. It's so easy at times in this business to feel alone in what you're experiencing, and it doesn't have to be that way. And so Jen and I were like, well, why don't we just facilitate these groups? Like if we if we do the fundraising and if we gather the donations and if we provide the space, then maybe we can get these groups together so that they have an opportunity to really talk for themselves and figure it out for themselves. Because there's a lot of things that like I as a 35 year old straight white male, like I just don't understand. I can offer my sympathy and my and my empathy to the absolute best of my ability, but I don't know if it's my place to say this is the way to fix the problem. Those people know better. They're on the front lines of their issue, and we need to listen to them. I don't like. I don't know, man. It just seems really simple to me. It seems like a simple, simple, simple thing. And so Jen and I were like, okay, we need to figure out how to do this. Uh, the pandemic has like put a big pause button on it. Yeah. Uh, because like, like Jen's life has switched quite a bit. Everybody's life has really done a, a large, large pivot, which in the case of Troubadour Project, I choose to leverage that pivot and turn it into momentum and take this new momentum of me moving to BC again to begin that process anew and with a fresh perspective. Another project that you 
started relatively recently was the Halfway Monk. Where did that name come from? And what is the Halfway Monk? I called it the Halfway Monk because I've always, and this might sound weird, but I've always felt like half of a monk. Since I was a kid, I've always gravitated towards a pretty particular archetype, like a, a very particular character in all the films that I watched. Characters like Tenzin in Legend of Korra, Master Shifu in Kung Fu Panda, Rafiki in The Lion King. I've always been so drawn to that type of character who goes outside of society in order to see what society is. That's a, an initiatory process that we as humans used to have. Like that used to be part of your life as a person on this earth was to rise up into society and then at a certain point, leave society and then, and then come back. It's where we get phrases like beyond the pale, which meant just like beyond the walls and confines and safety of a structured reality. So Shifu really resonated with me, Shifu especially, because here's this guy who is a monk, but has all these roiling internal doubts and confusions. And it takes somebody from the outside to open him up to that idea. This is since I was a child, I've gravitated to that. But at the same time, as much as part of me has wanted to like run off into a monastery, there's also a part of me that really quite enjoys like being in a city and being around things like third wave coffee shops and like going for sushi and ice cream cake is a weird sort of half ascetic disappear into nothingness monk and this sort of like epicurean dude who just wants to try everything with regards to your first published book of your poems um to be left on the king street platform assorted poems how did you start writing? Is it, is it something that runs in your family or is it something that just naturally evolved out of your own interest? My grandma wrote. My grandma liked writing. And I, I took an interest in writing. I took an interest in singing. And my grandma was right there. And, and like the rest of my family too, in their own way. But grandma was very vocal in saying, if you want to write, then you should write. And you should write more. If you want to sing, you should sing more. Do what you love, but do more of it. It was something that I had never really talked about with people. I, it's something I'd never really expressed, and it's something I'd never really considered myself to be. And then January 2019 hits. I had, a few months prior, gone through the worst breakup in my life, and I felt completely adrift. I didn't know what I really wanted. I didn't know where I really wanted to go. I didn't know really where I was as a person. And I was at this bachelor party and this is like the least stereotypical bachelor party ever. <laughs> as a vulnerability exercise, each of us read something that we had written. And I was like, oh, I, I just, I had nothing really on my phone other than a poem I had written recently about my grandfather. And so I read that and these like 14 other men were silent for a moment and they were like, that's really, that's powerful stuff. And I went, what? <laughs> and later on, one of the guys came up to me and he said, have you published anything? And I went, no, why? And he's like, why not? And that just kind of hit me because he said it so frankly and so honestly. 
I, I had no good answer for him. Why, why haven't I published this? And so I got back to Toronto and I, I sat down at my favorite coffee shop and I just went, all right, well, here I go. I collected all these poems and I put them out there with no intention of making money, no intention of, of, of fame or fortune or anything like that. It was to prove to myself that I was more, more than the, my role, more than the role I was playing, Aaron the Singer. By the way, for any for everyone who's listening, you can find Aaron's book on Amazon. Is there another website they can find it on? Uh, no, I, I published it through Amazon because <laughs> that's the cheapest way to do it. In hindsight, I probably would have published it somewhere else because Jeff Bezos doesn't need any more money. Hey, it, volume two, whatever. There's always room. Or volume two, volume two. I will like write myself on parchment. There you go. Oh, I'm I'm so ready for that. It's the most <laughs> operatic way to write poetry on parchment. Right. If you don't mind, I wanted to. I was having. I was going through a lot of the uh, a lot of blues after I graduated, and one of the first poems I read from the book was "Opening Night, Well Wishings." If you don't mind, I'm going to read a bit of it. The depth of thankfulness I now possess is made all the clearer by you all. This thing we do, this happy thing full of sound and fury and the raucous beauty of humanity. This is what stirs souls, lifting them to places rare visited on this smoky earth, places from where someone, anyone might see the whole horizon of possibility. Such is art's power when you sing it. So thank you, truly, for your work, each and every one. Thank you for allowing me to share with you the crafted miracle called opera. Tonight and every night hereafter, toy, toy, toy. This, this poem, it, it, it encapsulates everything that I wanted to say to the UBC opera program, but I don't think I ever got a chance to say. So it was a, for me, it was a sense of closure. I am perpetually worried and anxious of being unable to express the level of gratitude that I feel. It's a weird complex I have to the point where it actually in some moments like really shuts me up and I'm unable to say just about anything. I just had a friend, a buddy of mine over for pizza the other night and there was so much I wanted to say to him because he's been such a, a formative part of my Toronto life and even even a portion of my Vancouver life, but he lives here. And all I could say was like, it's been a slice. <laughs> and he left, he got in his car and I went, ah, oh, damn it. How do I? Ah. So well, like when I wrote that, it was one of the, one of the rare moments where I felt like I kind of came close. I, I can't even remember what opera I wrote this for. I tried to encompass not just that opera that I wrote this for specifically, but try, tried to encompass every show I'd ever done. Yeah, and that, that's the feeling that I get from it, reading it. I say with the fullest gravity that I wouldn't be here if it had not been for opera and the people in it. And so the reason I can write the poem at all, the reason I can write anything at all is because of the people that I've, I've worked with and been around and talked to and sung at. What is next for Aaron Durant? Well, the current timeline is get to BC, settle in, and then see what is really moving me at the, at the time. Like once I have a bed to sleep in, once my partner and I have a bed to sleep in, then I'll be like, all right, what do I want to do? 
my my producer job for those that are listening on the podcast producer for man talks founded by a fellow ubc grad actually connor beaton and we we focus very heavily on building self-awareness and the tools to not just survive but thrive physically mentally spiritually how to navigate crisis moments or transition moments how to like how to really come to terms with what culture has told you is a man versus something that is actually frankly a lot healthier uh for ev- for everybody involved yeah and not just for men it's just anyone who's around not just for yeah. men yeah. yeah like it's it's hard to sum up once you listen to a couple of the episodes then it's like oh okay okay that's all I'll leave it because this is your podcast and not Connor's but to continue on with what um, what you'd ask, like the rest of the timeline, like creative projects, I'm going to put this out into the universe because I've given up trying to hide a lot of my ideas. I still run, uh, it's very back burner right now because all of us involved are, have many different priorities right now. But I have a small production company here in Toronto called Tongue and Cheek Productions. What I would really like to do at some point is <laughs> do a very topsy-turvy version of Messiah based on Al Franken's comics called Supply Side Jesus. <laughs> I don't know. Do you know those comics? Yes, I do. Yes. For those that don't know those comics, it is largely the the story of, of Christ turned upside down into what is actually being practiced by the majority of, let's say, American Midwest Christianity. Uh, Jesus, shouldn't you heal those lepers? No, Thomas, that would only make them lazy. <laughs> like that sort of deal. Tongue in cheek's motto is Mark Twain's motto. Uh, it's the test of a good religion, whether or not you can joke about it. And we feel the same about uh, art. We feel the same about opera and I don't want it to be some sort of inflammatory, revolutionary rah-rah because there are people doing that already and there are people doing it in a much better way than I could ever do it. But I do want to have fun and I do also want to point out some of the hypocrisy that's going on. Um, I want it to be crowdsourced. So what I would like to do is find as many BIPOC singers as I can and have them rewrite their arias from the perspective of supply side Jesus. I just want to put that out there that if anybody's interested, just just contact me. And if you don't like the idea, that's okay. That's that's really okay. Uh, but if you do like the idea and you're a singer, uh, if you're a BIPOC singer and you would like to perform, then let's let's talk and I'll give you a bit more deets. And uh, Aaron, if it's okay, uh, in the description for this podcast, I'll put out your email or would you like people to message you at Halfway Monk on Instagram? I just do Insta. Insta. Perfect. So to close out our conversation, uh, I was wondering if I could be so bold as to ask if you would be kind enough to do a reading of your one of your most recent prose uh, postings on the Halfway Monk uh, called Interlude, uh, Light Up Live. Yeah, for sure. Of course. I wrote this because, uh, and I called it Light Up Live because I saw all these posts on on Light Up Live Day of of theaters with red lights. I don't, ha- I don't have any red lights. I am in this 
this interlude part of my life myself where I'm not, I'm not doing a lot of singing. I'm not doing any performing, but like, these are family that are, that are putting these lights up and we're all going through this, this crazy thing. And I sat and I meditated on it and just, I had to, I had to do something and this sort of vomited out of me. (laughs) Um, So long as I am able so long as I breathe, I will grieve the people of my art by building. I will love the people of my art by doing. At morning, I will pour my knowledge into the foundation of my house. At day, I will cut my understanding into beams and rafters. And at dusk, I will light the hearth and listen to the tales. In a great pot, I will cook my life as only I know how and serve all the people of my art who come to my table. At eve, I will leave a flickering lamp at the front door and prepare beds for guests. Then I will sleep in peace, for no thief can rob us of the moon or yesterday. This will be my doing, until there are none who cannot call my home their own. On this earthen stage, I will perform every role I am graced. Partner, son, friend, lover, Listener, talker, reacher, dreamer, mourner, celebrant, provocateur, catalyst, wet blanket, failure, victor, teacher, student, me, you, us, it, all. I will make my music with hand and heart, silence and symbol, teeth and tears, hammer and home, until the final curtain. Aaron. Thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for doing this podcast with me. I've learned so much more than I could have ever imagined or asked for just talking with you. And I'm, I'm happy that you are going to be back in Vancouver because we definitely have to go on a couple of uh, those socially distanced walks and coffees. It's been a slice. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Of course. Anytime. As always, thank you to Duncan Watts-Grant for editing and producing the show with me. It's hard to believe that we started this little project back in April. Now, eight months in, we are excited to let you know that we are moving forward with more interviews, new content, and new partnerships, so make sure you tune in. Finally, if you are one of our new listeners, remember to subscribe, like, and leave us a comment on Apple Podcast. Thank you for listening.